Restore Temecula, it's so good to be with you. This is Herrick. I am. I have the privilege of continuing our series through the end times, and I wish I could be with you in person. I'm missing you guys uh, regularly, and uh, we are excited to, to kind of talk through the what is happening here in these last days that we are on this earth before Christ's return. And so I have the privilege of basically introducing this idea of how do we live faithfully in these end times. And Tom did all the heavy lifting, so I just get to come in here and talk about how we get to love one another uh, in, the, in the meantime until Christ's return and all these things that we've talked about unfold. So I, I wanna open this up, I wanna share a quick story with you as I was thinking about the, the end times, I, I was just drawn back to last summer, so the summer of 2019. I got a phone call from my mom and she told me that uh, my grandma, it's actually my dad's mom, uh, who was about to turn 97, was very sick. She actually got pneumonia. And uh, her body was slowly shutting down, so it, it became clear like this, this is probably the end uh, for her. And so here's the thing, she lived in Puerto Rico which is where I was born and where I was raised. And I hadn't been able to go out there for several years to go visit. Uh, it's called a lot of different factors at play, but for a young family like mine, Heather and two kids, it was just tough to, to get, get up and go. It's pretty far away. There's a lot of complexity to getting there. And um, at this point in time, last summer, Heather was pregnant. And uh, if you know anything about us, we have tough pregnancies. Heather, she's a champ, she's a trooper, but man, she gets sick that first trimester. And so we were just coming out of a very difficult time where she was knocked out for, uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And we were just slowly coming out of that. So I felt very sensitive about leaving her and my young family uh, to, to then go and travel halfway around the world. So a lot of things I didn't know. I didn't know if my grandma's illness uh, was gonna unfold quickly or slowly, we didn't know. Uh, I could book a plane, I could, I could book a flight, I can get on a plane. By the time I got there, she could be gone. I could miss uh, essentially the, the opportunity. Um, I could also make it to Puerto Rico in time and then have to return within a few weeks. There's just no way to know exactly how this was all gonna play out. And all the while, I would have to put my young family, which was very needy, and my work, which was, uh, which was pretty busy, on hold. And so I had to make a choice. And so I could either take the risk and go, I could stay home and, uh, and just kind of wait until she passed. And there were a lot of factors to consider. I was counseled by family members to wait. And here's the thing though, I felt conflicted. And I, like, I was like, I wish I had gone. Because it had been three years since I had seen her. I was like, I wish I had gone and figured it out. It was tough, but I wish I had figured out a way to get there when she was in better health. And then that night as I was chewing on this stuff, I started thinking about even though there had been a lot of time that had passed between when I saw her last and this moment, I still had a choice about what to do. I had a window of opportunity essentially before the end. And so it dawned on me that day, like my priorities started to become very clear. I wanted to go, I wanted to honor my grandma. I wanted to go and say goodbye to her. I wanted to be there with my dad as he essentially said goodbye to the last living family member of his family of origin of the family he grew up with. And so within a plane, within a day or so, I was on a plane. And then within a few hours, it was wheels down in San Juan, and I made the trek across the island to my hometown in Mayaguez. And so the next morning, I walked into the hospital room, and my grandma was there. She was frail, and she was um, faint, and she was breathing with help. But I made it. And uh, I walked into that hospital room. Her eyes were closed. She couldn't open them, and she couldn't talk. So I just sat next to her, and I got to tell her, that I loved her, I got to tell her 
that she would be with Jesus soon. I got to pray with her, and, um, and I got to tell her that she would be a great grandmother again because Heather was pregnant, and she didn't know. And so I got to do all these things, and I got to thank her. And then pretty soon, she was gone. I was actually the last person that got to talk to her uh, before she left to be with Jesus. And so this realization that I had a window of time, a window of opportunity, it, it opened up everything for me. It changed how I viewed it. And so what is my point in telling you this story? What I'm trying to tell you is this. When the end is near, our priorities become clear. And we're in a series about the end times. And as we, as we think about the end times, I think it's very important for us to remember what they are. Among other things, the end times are a window. They're a window of opportunity for us before Christ returns. And you and I, we have a choice about what we do with that window, what we do with this time. So today, we're going to answer the question, how do we live faithfully in these end times? Now, there's a variety of texts that we could actually unpack as we think about the end times. There's several, actually, that talk about what do we do, how do we live in the end times. I've chosen 1 Peter 4, primarily because it's beautifully, I think, relevant to the moment that we're living in. And it's also wonderfully concise, which helps me because I can get going. And... Uh, and there's only so much time for this video. So I want to give you a little bit of insight into this letter of 1 Peter before I dive into it. But I want to take a minute just to pray. So will you pray with me and for me? Um, Father, I, I want to thank you for this, this moment where we get to open up your text, we get to open up the word, and we get to see what you say to us about these end times. We get to see how, what it looks like to live faithfully, follow Jesus, until his return, until we're face to face with him. And I want to thank you that we get to do this together. And I want to pray that you would help me right now. Help me just to, to proclaim what is true. And would you pour out your spirit? And would you help us to really see how this applies to our life, our lives individually and our life together, our shared life as a community? God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, First Peter, context. We haven't been in First Peter, so let me give you a little bit of context. Peter is writing to disciples who are facing difficult times. Throughout the letter, if you read it, Peter consistently points them back to the hope of the gospel amidst their suffering. He tells them that your suffering, it's real, it's difficult, and it's temporary. But the inheritance that we have in Christ is eternal. And so in light of God's grace towards us and the coming judgment, now in this life, we get to live hopeful, disciplined and godly lives until the end of this age. So I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 9. We just have two, two or three verses today, but they're concentrated. So here they are, verses 7 and 9, 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Verse 8. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since Love covers over a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Today, we're going to focus on just two things. We're going to focus on love and hospitality. Love and hospitality. So first, let's talk about love. In verse 8, Peter says, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Notice what Peter doesn't tell this Christian community about the end times. He doesn't say that agreement on a particular viewpoint on the end times and how everything's going to unfold is paramount. He doesn't say that figuring out the identity of who is this beast and uh, what is the mark of the beast, he doesn't say that these things are paramount. 
Don't misunderstand me. These things matter because they're in scripture. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't give time and attention to these things. We should. And indeed we are. That's what we're doing in this series. But here's what I am saying. That when it comes to what is paramount, when it comes to what is most important, when it comes to the things that we should spend the bulk of our time, our energy and efforts on, it's not necessarily developing a doctrinal position on the end times or defending one or fine-tuning one, as good as those things could be. Instead, what's paramount? It's right relationships between believers. That's what's paramount. Notice something very interesting. Peter assumes that there will be sin in the Christian community. That's what he talks about, love covering over a multitude of sins. Living faithfully in the end times actually requires us to love each other, he says, deeply. Another way of thinking about it is it requires us to love each other intensely, even as we get on each other's nerves, even as we disagree, even as we sin against one another. So I want to ask you the question, and really this is, these are all written to community, so I want to really ask us the question. As a community, is loving one another paramount to us? Is that the most important thing? As we think about the end times, as we see the end approaching, is love, healthy relationships, right relationships, paramount? Now I want to say, I'm going to read a quote. Before I do, I want to say that I believe it is, and I want to affirm you as a church. I believe that you are a loving church. I believe that we have a loving community. I think there's something special happening within Restore Temecula. So a lot of what I'm going to say, it's by way of reminder and encouragement to keep pursuing love more and more. So I want to read you this quote that I thought was really helpful to me when I was uh, prepping for this message. This came out of one of the commentaries that I was reading. It says this. He's going to unpack this love being above all and what that means. It says the expression above all, it speaks to the priority and preeminence of love as a Christian virtue as we wait for the day of the Lord and learn to live in light of that day as we live in this window of opportunity. It's the MVP of Christian virtues and deserves all the media's attention. I love that he threw this in here. This is an old commentary, but um, he says deserves all the media's attention. What would that be like if the world was full of a media that was focusing on Christian love? That would be, be a different world that we'd live in. Further, it needs to be worked at for what is, for this is what love deeply means. It means a love for others that transforms a society into a true church. It's more than just a response to people that we like. It's not hard to, to like people who are like you or that have the same interests that you have. That's not hard. What is hard and what is more challenging is to think about how can I act lovingly to that person, the people in the church that we have disagreements with. How do we respond lovingly to those people? Do we ignore them so as to avoid conflict? Do we gossip about them so as to strengthen our ego and damage their reputation? Do we pray against them and their ambitions? Or do we seek them out so as to create reconciliation? Do we pray for them and their ambitions? Do we speak kindly to them and of them? When love is preeminent among Christian virtues, then we behave differently. And when we are dominated by love, we cover over a multitude of sins. So, in other words, these verses imply a community that can tolerate more differences, forgive more wrongs, and grow into more effective prayers. It's not an us versus them mentality that so dominates our culture today. We're not enemies. We're reconciled and restored brothers and sisters in Christ, learning how to be a family 
that's diverse, that's different. And it'll inevitably be a community noted by its hospitality and warmth. And I love that word, warmth. That's one of the things that I think makes, I remember when I was in Uptown, and restored Uptown in North Park. That was one of the things that I found was, was so different and refreshing about our community, was the warmth. People would come, people who were not followers of Jesus, who did not grow up in the church, they were drawn in by the community that was warm and receptive to them. Love and warmth are two beautiful aspects of this new community that Jesus is now forming in, this, in these last days. Love is a perennial solution to problems in the Christian community. We don't call on it sporadically or occasionally to enter into the fray, nor do we pray for its presence only when things have gotten totally out of hand, which, by the way, it feels like things have gotten totally out of hand in our nation right now. But instead, love is what we ought to pray for all the time because it's the above all virtue. Love is the number one priority in the Jesus community, of every Jesus community. If we remember that this window of opportunity will soon close, we're going to feel that urgency that Peter places on having right relationships with each other. Here's the interesting part right now. We're, we're in a global pandemic. And we're experiencing a, a lot of things. But I actually think that this moment that we're living in right now actually helps us to have a sense of urgency, especially with the pandemic, to prioritize right relationships with each other. So, recent example. I ran into a friend that I hadn't seen in a while. I hadn't seen him before the pandemic. And we got to talking about life and, and how are you doing with everything that's going on. And he said, you know, there's been some really hard things about this time. And there's also been some really good things about this time. And I love a good silver lining. So I was like, tell me about it. What is it? What do you feel like has been good about this time? And he said that, well, do you remember how, you know, before uh, my parents and I, we, we were having a really hard time and we weren't talking. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, when the pandemic hit, when I started to see what was going on, when I started to see the suffering that, that people were experiencing, all different types of suffering, including the possibility of, of serious and significant health complications for some people. With my mom being in that kind of class of people that are more, uh, that are more susceptible to bad outcomes, I realized I need to reach out to her. I want to reach out to her. I want to make it right. And so what did he do? He did, he reached out to her and they're talking again and they're working through what's going on. And as my friend is talking, I'm like, bro, you've got it. That's it. When the end is in sight, something happens to us that says, let's work it out. This isn't worth being divided over, unreconciled or distant from one another. When the end's in sight, we have a desire actually to cover over sin. And that's a beautiful thing. And I think it reflects Jesus in a really powerful way because Jesus is the one who has covered over our sin. It's Jesus who has, has come into our broken world, into a world that's estranged from him, into a world that, that has resisted him and rejected him. And I know because this is a part of my story in my life that I said no to Jesus. That I didn't want his rule, his reign over my life. I rejected and resisted him. And he came to us who were running away from him. Some of us were running away through religious performance and others of us were running away sort of through, through this kind of irreligious life. But in any case, whether it was religion or irreligion, we didn't want him and he came to us. And it was his love that actually covered over a multitude of our sins. And now we get to love one another as he has loved us. And so we're learning together in this window of opportunity, in this time, to love one another as he's loved us. 
He has taken up residence in our hearts. If you're a disciple of Jesus, he lives within you. Jesus is in you. And he wants to, to cultivate this sort of life, this sort of love here in the end times to see you through to the end and to see our community through to the end. He will not leave you alone in this endeavor. And we have one another. So love can actually cover a multitude of sins and faux pas that we commit in our community. And we don't have to be a family that just kind of sweeps stuff under the rug and doesn't deal with it. Real love actually confronts the truth with grace, just like Christ does. And so Jesus, his love frees us. Not only to be a forgiving people who extend forgiveness, we can also be a people who, and I'm quoting, hear criticism, admit when we've been wrong, ask for forgiveness and repent. This is the core theme of Christianity. If we think about it, this is how we have approached God. We have come to a gracious God. We have admitted that we're wrong. We have asked him to forgive us. We've repented. And if this is how we relate to our Father in heaven, then this will shape and inform how we relate to one another in these last days. This can characterize our relationships. If someone has a grievance against us, whatever it might be, the cross of Jesus, imagine there's a cross here, we can look to that and just be like, that's proof that I should probably listen to this person and not dismiss them. Because Jesus died for something. He didn't die for nothing. Not just the past sins, but all the sins that we would ever commit. So this person who's in front of you, who may be bringing something up to your attention about you that, that you may not want to hear, and they may not get it exactly right. In fact, most of the time they won't because they can't see into your heart. This person might actually be able to give you a level of self-awareness that you would not have without them. They may not know everything that's going on in your heart, but they probably know something that you might not be aware of when they bring something to your attention. And we don't have to get defensive. They're offering us a gift if we'll receive it, of admitting when we're wrong, asking for forgiveness and repenting. What if these things characterize the church in these last days? We talk about things like systemic racism and oppression and injustice. What if we were open to having conversations like this with people? There are several things that can get in the way though. I wanna just go through a couple. I don't have time to go through everything, but I wanna talk about defensiveness first. This, by the way, will come out of uh, the green book that many of you guys have gone through if you're in a gospel community. We go through this green book, it's called The Gospel Centered Life. And this is what it says. When someone is defensive, this is what's going on. When I'm defensive, because this is true of me. I find it difficult to receive feedback about my weaknesses or sins. When I'm confronted, my tendency is to explain things away, talk about my successes, or justify my decisions. As a result, people are hesitant to approach me. And I rarely have conversations about difficult things in life. If this is you, I don't condemn you. Defensiveness comes naturally to me too. The scariest question I think I could ever ask someone who knows me is, how do you experience me? I've thought about this, why is it so scary? I've been thinking about asking Heather this question and I haven't been able to yet, because deep down I fear I'm probably more messed up than I know and I'm not sure that I can handle it. There's just this resistance to go there. And realizing this has actually started to drive me to pray. And almost immediately when I did that early this week, it hit me that I'm probably not fully believing the gospel if there's defensiveness in my heart. This Tim Keller quote just started to fill my heart as I have been thinking about it. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever 
dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel actually brings freedom to me and to you, to us as a community to deal with the parts of our lives and character that don't yet look like Jesus. His love has covered my sin and yours. So I can look at myself in the mirror with honesty and humility and begin to address the things that need attention, especially when others bring them to my attention so I can become aware of them. So that's the first thing. We can actually get hung up and become defensive. And we can miss out on the chance of receiving the gospel for ourselves. The second thing, and this is the only two things I'm going to talk about, is blaming. Here's a quote from the Gospel-Centered Life. I am quick to blame others for sin and circumstances. I have a difficult time owning my contributions to sin or conflict. There's an element of pride that assumes it's not my fault, or there might be an element of fear of rejection if it is my fault. And as I've been chewing on it this week, I'm not sure that we can love and shift the blame on someone, that we can love someone and then shift the blame on them at the same time. When I refuse to acknowledge my hurtful words, actions, or attitudes, I hinder my brother or my sister from healing, and I probably add on to their pain and make it worse. But when I accept responsibility for everything I can and I ask for forgiveness, then I can be part of the healing process for them. I can then receive the love of Jesus that covers over my sins. And imagine if the gospel made it safe to bring sin into the open and to receive gentle correction from one another. Here's what this could look like. I want to tell you a story. Uh, Ken Sandy is a wonderful uh, Christian conciliator. He works, he helps Christians make peace. He helps them work through uh, a lot of times complex conflict. And so he has a lot, of, a lot of experience helping people work through things with the gospel and the biblical principles. And he tells a story about a business investor uh, who came up with a lot of ideas on how to make money. And one day he found out that the highway department in his state was putting a new interchange in. And so suddenly there was this farmland that was gonna become very valuable. And so he went out and he's like, I need to buy that land, but he didn't have the cash to do it. And so what he did was he went out, he found investors and he told them, I can double your money in 12 months. This is the type of investment opportunity that might never come around again. If you can help me with this, I think we'll all benefit. And so he raised $100,000 from investors in his church primarily. And so that state that they were in actually changed the schedule and decided not to put the interchange in right away. And so the land did not increase in value the way he had expected it to. And so the businessman thought, you know, it's still gonna happen. It might just take a year or two. So I wanna hold on to this land. But he wasn't able to make the return that he had promised the people. And those people were in his church. And so people were upset. They were angry, understandably so. For them, for some of them, this was their retirement money, so they needed it to live. And so this businessman, he kept giving excuses to them, and he started to actually avoid them. And the investors, they, they tried to, to do what Matthew 18 says, and they tried to approach him privately. It wasn't working. So then a couple of them came together, and they tried to approach him together, but nothing was getting through to him. And so finally, they kind of left with no more recourse. They brought it to the church, to the elders. And Ken Sandy, who's telling this story, he's one of the elders at that time. And at first, the, the businessman, he was evasive. He was making excuses when he sat down with Ken Sandy. But eventually he says, you know what? I jumped the gun. I made promises I could not keep, and I know that wasn't right. So at this point, Ken Sandy, he, he takes this, this approach. He recounts 
the gospel with him. He tells him the gospel again. He reminded the businessman that Jesus Christ died on the cross that we were talking about earlier for his sins and there's forgiveness in Christ for him. Ken Sandy, he, he, he sits with him and he says, remember 1 John 1, 8 to 9, which says this, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of a sudden, this businessman's his body kind of relaxed. His, his, his body language changed and he began to confess, this actually isn't my only bad business deal. There's other people in town who are mad at me too. And Ken's like, I, I had no idea. So this businessman, he began to confess other sins. He acknowledged that this was a pattern that he had learned from his father, who was a wheeler dealer, always coming up with deals and putting other people's money at risk. And he said, I've picked up this habit and I hate it. I don't want to be like this. Please help me. And then as Ken Stanley tells the story, he says the gospel encouraged repentance. The gospel made it safe for this man to bring all of his sin out into the open so that we could apply, the community could apply the love and the grace of Jesus to deliver him from these patterns. This businessman turned and said, I know there's a lot of talk in our church and people are divided. I really need to ask for the church's forgiveness. He wanted to make a public confession because his sin was public. So a week later, he was up in front of the church. He was standing next to the pastor and this man was making a confession, owning how he had impacted the church. He said he was grateful for how, pe how people had come alongside him. And he was working to develop new business practices and disciplines, and he was gonna sell that property and return the money to the investors. And the pastor got a chance to pronounce the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the scripture over this man. The beautiful moment. All of a sudden, a woman runs up to the stage. And obviously there's a little bit of tension, like what's going on, he, this person had upset many people in the community. And, it, and it, as it turned out, it was one of the, the, the investors who had been defrauded. She was coming up to the front. She had been one of the people that was the angriest, and she was a part actually of, of kind of a lot of gossip and, and rumors that had been spread throughout the church. And she had turned into actually a very divisive presence in the community. And uh, one of the elders had actually talk, tried to talk to her before, and had tried to let her know, hey, take a look at your own heart in this situation. Yes, you've been wronged. Look at your own heart in this situation. He pointed out John, 1 John 3.15, which says that if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. But she wasn't willing to face up to that. As she was walking up the aisle, following the businessman's confession, something in her expression seemed different. She asked, can I share something? And, and she was allowed to share something. And she said, she turns to the man. He says, she says, I need your forgiveness. I'm more guilty than you are. I've been murdering you in my heart the last several months. And she pours out her heart and she admits her sin. And then they end up starting to fight over who was more guilty. I'm more guilty. No, you're more guilty. Sorry. I'm more guilty. No, I'm more guilty. They weren't blame shifting. They were actually trying to own. They were actually trying to outdo one another in owning their sin and owning their part of this conflict. Here's my point. The gospel helped them face their sin, confess it, and repent of it. What if in these end times, the church was known for this? Not for the shady business practices, but for stories of gospel love that covers over a multitude of sins. If the gospel can transform big situations like that, you gotta believe that the gospel can help us with the daily stuff that we struggle with in our interpersonal relationships. It's more than capable, Jesus is more than capable of helping us with the little stuff that comes up often and the big things that we're facing as a community that's trying to love one another 
and is pursuing right relationships in these last days. I want the gospel to operate in my life, like the way I've been describing, and I bet you do too. Right relationships among believers are paramount in these end times. The gospel makes it safe for us to pursue right relationships with each other, to put away defensiveness, to stop blaming, blame shifting, and to actually own our part and to extend forgiveness. That's love. That's my longest point by far. Hospitality is going to be much shorter. First Peter 4.9 says this, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Here's a quote that I loved. It's very brief. It says, True Christian hospitality is making people feel at home when you wish they were home. So I want to share some brief observations with you about hospitality. Number one, we need love. If we're going to be hospitable people, if we're going to open our hearts and our homes to one another, we need love to cover a multitude of sins. Because when we get close enough to one another, we get irritated and frustrated and annoyed. If you've ever been on a trip for a few days with like a, even like friends that you love and family that you're excited about, you know stuff comes up. And if we, we are, because when, you, when you're close to people, things come up. And we can become frustrated, irritated, annoyed. So we need love to cover over a multitude of sins if we're actually going to pursue a lifestyle of hospitality. Second thing is hospitality is uncomfortable. I love that Peter just, he just straight up says, be hospitable, no complaining. He knows it's going to be uncomfortable. Opening our hearts and our homes to one another puts us into a vulnerable state. We're, we're exposed to some degree. And we're also, we're, up, we're, we're exposed to whatever may come our way and our own lives are exposed in a way that might be embarrassing. There might be things that come out that we would rather people not know about. So love and tenderness, mercy, grace, gratitude, all of these things are required when showing hospitality and when receiving hospitality as well. And lastly, hospitality involves sacrifice. It involves a sacrifice. I was hosted once by a family in Washington State during my time in pastor school. This was about five years ago. So brand new pastor, just gotten ordained down in San Diego with a short uptown. And, and I was flying up to Washington State to, to be a part of the pastor school up there. I went up every month. Somebody, I still don't know who it was. Somebody paid for all of it. It was amazing. Somebody who uh, loves Jesus, loves me, and loves the kingdom paid for the whole thing. And I stayed with a host family in this little town called Wenatchee. It's the apple capital of the world, actually. This wonderful family hosted me. Uh, one of the local churches there was hosting the school. And one of the things I appreciated so much was this family's willingness to reorient their busy days and busy lives to talk to me, to ask me questions, to understand my heart for Jesus and for his people. They wanted to know, why do you want to be a pastor? Tell me about your life. Tell me about what's leading you to want to give your life to church planting and to the church. They took time to pray for me. They would pray for me before I stayed with them and after enduring. Remarkable people. They treated my needs as if they were their own needs. They treated me like family. They treated me as if Jesus himself was staying at their house. And I'll never forget that. But I know it was a sacrifice. I know that it was costly for them. They had busy, complex lives and they welcomed me into it. So what, what am I saying? We get to welcome one another when it's inconvenient, when it's uncomfortable, and when it's, I love this word, suboptimal. That's the context for deep love. It's when it's hard. It's when love uh, becomes deep, when it becomes intense, when it becomes intentional. And that's the sort of love that Peter's describing. It's love that plays itself out 
in many ways, including hospitality, welcoming one another into our hearts and into our homes. So in conclusion, I'm gonna, I'm gonna land this plane. We have an opportunity. We have a window of opportunity. These end times, they are not for speculating about how this is all gonna play out and how when Jesus is coming, that's not the, that's not the point. The, the utmost thing in these end times is love. So as we see the end drawing near, I wanna ask you the question, how might God be calling you to love this community during this window of opportunity that we have, also known as the end times? How might we together pursue right relationships with each other as we see the day of the Lord approaching? How might he be calling us to grow in hospitality as a community in these last days? I'm going to go ahead and close this out with prayer. But I want you to know, Resort Temecula, I love you, I miss you, and I'm excited to grow in faithfulness with you during these end times. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, your mercy. Thank you that you drew near to us in Christ. Thank you that you loved us in such a way that you covered over our sins. Thank you that through the gospel we can have right relationships with each other. Thank you that we can open our hearts and homes to one another through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you and we're grateful to you for it all. Would you help us to grow faithful as a community? Would we be found to be a faithful community in these end times? Father, we love you and we're grateful to you for it all. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So uh, next week, I'm gonna unpack more of 1 Peter 4. We're gonna talk about how do we use our gifts during these end times as an extension of love to build one another up and to practice uh, a faithfulness as a community to Jesus while he when he while we wait for his return so love you church we'll see you soon <laughs>